We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. Life is full of suffering. It's the first of the four noble truths in Buddhism. But what if we're making everything more difficult for ourselves, almost as if while one half of us is striving to achieve our goals, the other half is sabotaging us? So today, I'm going to be looking at getting out of your own way. I got the idea from a family memoir by the coach, writer and broadcaster, Christina Patterson. She is a former columnist for the Independent Newspaper and a former director of the Poetry Society. Her first book was an exploration of how people navigate a crisis called The Art of Not Falling Apart. But we're going to be focusing on her latest book, Outside the Sky is Blue, a family memoir. Welcome, Christina. What made you decide to open up your family history for public scrutiny? Well, thank you for having me on the podcast, Andrew. I've been wanting to write this book or a version of this book for many, many years. And I suppose if you're a writer, most writers want to talk about or write about in some form, whether that be fiction or nonfiction, the first story they encounter and the first story they encounter is generally their family. And there were particular circumstances in my family that made me want to write about them, but also made it feel like a taboo subject for quite a long time. The the main one, I suppose, was that my sister, when she was 14, she was a very, very lovely, but very difficult child. And when she was 14, she came back from a holiday on an, in Norway and not long after disappeared. And it turned out, we didn't know my... I'm. I was five years younger than her. My brother was three years younger than her. And our parents sort of protected us from what was going on. But it turned out that she had come back and heard voices that weren't there and essentially had psychotic delusions, though we didn't realize that till many, many years later. And our parents did tell us that Caroline had had something called a nervous breakdown, and we didn't really know what that was. And we knew she'd been sent away to something called a unit, and it turned out that that was the unit of a psychiatric hospital or mental hospital, as we called them in those days. Caroline was in there for a while. In the end, my mother fought to get her out because she could see that she was just getting worse and worse there. But when she did come out to see us, she looked very different. She had a big swollen stomach. She was very spotty. And she was basically on very high doses of a drug called Largactil, an antipsychotic drug, which they still give to people with schizophrenia. And she was on that drug for the rest of her life. And she was ultimately diagnosed with schizophrenia. And she had a very difficult life. She died very suddenly of heart failure when she was 41, which was very, very shocking and terrible. She was a very sweet person, but she had a very difficult life. And obviously her illness, I say obviously because I think it nearly always does. Her illness had a very big impact on the family and on my brother and me. And I didn't realise this particular parallel till years later. But when I was 14, I went to a youth club in order to meet boys. And the youth club was attached to a Baptist church. And I ended up being 
converted to a kind of very virulent form of born-again Christianity from the age of 14 to 26, which had a profound effect on my youth and sort of marked me for life and stopped me from having the natural development I would otherwise have had if I hadn't been essentially a raving maniac. So it took me years to realise that there were, in a sense, these two parallels, that when we were both 14, we both, in our own ways, went off the rails. You know, I think Caroline literally went mad and I went mad in a different kind of way. So I suppose I had wanted to tell something of that story of my finding a vicious God, actually. And in the end, I literally told that God to fuck off after many trials and traumas. Caroline couldn't tell her demons to fuck off because they were inside her and she was doomed to live with them in certain form until she died, which is the reality of mental illness or at least of schizophrenia for most people. So it was something about wanting to tell that story about the impact of mental illness on a family and of my experience of essentially being radicalised. I mean, what was extraordinary was just how much documentary evidence do you had, because uh, your whole family were basically avid collectors uh, Mm. of uh, diaries. They kept absolutely everything. Mm. And I mean, what is so extraordinary is you're the last member standing of your family. Mm. What's it like being the last member standing? Well, I don't really know how to answer that question. I mean, obviously, it's terrible. I think I say in the book, my my brother died very, very suddenly, just under three years ago in July 2019, shortly before the pandemic. And the two most shocking things that happened in my life, and I've had, you know, quite a lot of shocking things happen in my life, was my father's phone call to say that my sister had collapsed and died when she was 41, and I was 36, I think. And the other was my brother was on the phone to my aunt. He was due to come visit us for the first time. My partner had bought a house in Northamptonshire and he was due to come to visit us. And my aunt called to say the line had gone silent. And essentially it turned out that he'd had a heart attack and died. Whether he died on the phone, I mean, clearly had a heart attack on the phone. I don't know whether he died straight away or not. The ambulance took so long to reach him that he was certainly dead by the time he arrived. And when I, by the time I got down there and saw him lying on the floor and put my arms around him, I thought I would die of grief. My gosh. Obviously, it's terrible. I mean, it's terrible to lose both your parents and it's terrible to lose both your siblings. I mean, it's terrible in that I loved each one of them very much. They were all very, very special people. And I think one of the things that emerges in the book is that for all their sort of suffering and struggles, profoundly decent people, profoundly decent people, good people, actually. I I believe in goodness and they were good people. So yes, it was terrible. If I allow myself to think about it, it is terrible. I don't have children. Neither of my siblings had children. My brother didn't have a partner. So, you know, it is the end of the family line. And obviously most of my friends have children and I've met very few people who don't have any family left. So it is difficult. But, you know, what are you going to do? You could lie under the duvet for the rest of your life saying, woe is me, this is very difficult which would be a complete and utter waste of time. Or you can say life is precious and beautiful and this is it. I don't get another one. So I'm going to absolutely make the most of whatever time I have left. And that's what I've chosen to do. And to make sense of this story as well for yourself and for other people, because it is, uh, and you can hear me cracking up, it's a profoundly moving story. 
I mean, my father died very recently and, you know, we obviously had to go through the papers and everything else like that. And you find, you know, correspondence between him and the school when you're seven years old and, you know, it's all still there. Your family had so much material. I mean, Mm -hmm. what's it like reading your mother's and father's diaries? Well, I haven't read them that much, actually. I mean, my mother was an avid chronicler of her daily life. She wrote a diary from something like 1964-1965 every day, pretty much until she died. One of her last diary entries, actually, in capital letters was Trump won. She was so horrified. I mean, as was I, as were, frankly, any decent person should have been. And another day that one of the few days in a diary that was blank was the day that Caroline went into the psychiatric hospital. It was just completely blank. But she kept this chronicle of her life. And I think, I mean, her handwriting is very, very hard to read. Mine is illegible. I mean, almost no one can read it. I can't really read it, but it's all I've got, so I have to try. And I would, it would take me probably the rest of my life in a way to wade through it and try to decipher handwriting. So I certainly haven't waded through all her diaries, but I did know about some of the significant dates. And she had, so about 20 years ago, after Caroline died, I did say to her, I want to write about Caroline's illness and the effect it had. And my mother sort of gave me her blessing and also material. You know, she gave me she translated some stuff from her youth because when she's Swedish, she was Swedish. And for example, my parents wrote their early love letters in German because they didn't speak each other's language. And she sort of helped ferret out some relevant diary entries to kind of find facts about when Caroline went into hospital and things like that. So I felt I had her permission. I don't think I would have. I I don't know because I haven't faced that particular moral dilemma, but I don't think I would have waded through her diary if she hadn't given me permission. Also, she was so meticulous about documenting everything. And I've got files here that say throw out on them. Um, I've got I've got some fantastic photos of my mother's childhood in Sweden and they've got throw out written on them and they're sort of historic, you know, records. So I wouldn't dream of throwing them out. But of course, when I die, everything I have will be thrown out because there will be nobody who's interested in my photos or diary. I wouldn't want anyone reading my very sporadic and rather self-pitying diaries. But, you know, there won't be anyone who's interested in my photos. So it will just have to all go in a giant skip. But I am interested in my mother's childhood photos, so I'm not throwing them out. But, and with my father, his were not very personal. He, he just, his diary entries were very short, three or four lines a day, very laconic, like slightly witty. And I was surprised by how sort of witty they were because he could seem like quite a dour man, actually, you know, senior civil servant, very serious, but he was witty as well. So I can look up particular dates and I only quote, I quote very little from both their diaries, actually, but I have that record there if I need it. And what I've probably quoted more of is sort of old letters, which I have been through and which have been kept. So yes, so there was this sort of vast archive, Patterson family archive, really, which was one of the kind of projects when Tom died and I had to clear out his house, which anyone who's done will know is a desperately upsetting thing to do. And in his garage, there were just all these boxes of stuff. So I did wade through them. I mean, I don't have much storage space. So I did throw out masses and I now, there are things I regret throwing out. I left a lot of 
my brother's photo albums and some family albums because there were hundreds and I've got nowhere to put them. And I now think, oh, you know, why didn't I take that? But anyway, I would have had to build an extension or something, which I, I can't do. So yes, I did have probably an unusually detailed archive to draw on. What's it like? Because my parents were the complete and utter opposite. I mean, they never kept one single newspaper article because I also worked at The Independent at uh, various points oh, as a freelance. You? Yeah, I used to do a column in the, I think it was the 90s called uh, Revelations, where famous people talked about a moment where their lives had changed. Oh, how interesting. But um my parents never, ever took the independent because it was terribly difficult to get in Bedford where they lived, <laughs> which is just ludicrous. So they never read anything. They never kept anything. Oh. But y- your mother basically followed you around taking photographs of all your, <laughs> your events. Well, not quite that much, but she did. When I was working at the South Bank, she would, she certainly didn't come to everything, not at all. That, she would, that would have been like a full-time job. But she, she did come to, on a Saturday, she might, if I was running a day of events, she might come along to that and surreptitiously take a photo and uh, get a book signed and surreptitiously whisper into the writer's ear that I was her daughter, which she was strictly forbidden to do, but I would sometimes <laughs> hear it. So, um, so yes, that was very, very touching, actually, very touching. And when she died, because she would, you know, faithfully watch me on on Sky News, I do the press preview a couple of times a month, and she would faithfully watch me every time. And when she died, I did think, who's going to watch me on Sky now? You know, there is that thing about feeling that there's somebody rooting for you. And I'm sad you didn't have that, Andrew. That's strange. And goodness knows, and I'm sure you've given plenty of thought as to why that was the case. But I, you know, with all our family trials and tribulations, the one thing I certainly always felt, in particular for my mother, was huge interest in what was happening in my life. And I think that is one of the giant losses when you lose a parent and particularly when you lose a mother for most people, obviously some people's mothers aren't very interested in them, but generally speaking, you play a stellar role in your mother's life and you may not play a stellar role in anybody else's life, particularly if you're single. So yeah, I mean, that is tough, but she, she was a, a great fan while she was alive. And, and I would discover that she would um, not only kind of buy the newspapers, often several copies, photocopy them, but also to my embarrassment, you know, I would meet her friends saying, yes, your mother sent me this article. I'm like, oh no, you know, <laughs> mum's inflicting my journalism on absolutely everyone she knows. <laughs> so Getting Out of Your Own Way was the title of a workshop retreat on a Greek island and as well as a chapter in your book. What was your life like at this point that you might need a workshop called Getting Out of Your Own Way? So when I was 26, I developed pains in my ankles that spread up to my knees. And within about a week, I was completely crippled with pain and had that pain for some years after that. It was At times, it was painful to stand up. It was painful to walk. I couldn't walk more than a few yards, really, without being in really quite excruciating pain. And it was the beginning of a kind of crime investigation, mystery investigation, really, because nobody could get to the bottom of it. And to cut a very long story short, a year after I first had blood tests done, which it turned out had been lost, I was told by a doctor's receptionist that I had an autoimmune disease called lupus. And all I knew about it was that it was incurable. So I think the pain 
was probably caused by inflammation caused by this autoimmune condition. It eventually faded, probably because I had intense psychotherapy recommended by a very enlightened GP. And also because I managed to get work that was reasonably fulfilling. I managed to have sort of, I wrote a piece in The Guardian the other day actually about the power of work to heal. And I think it did heal me. I felt as though having had my born again Christian years and having told God to fuck off and essentially being cast into the wilderness by the Christians who were my friends, not all of them, but you know, they thought I was going to hell because I had turned my back on God. I sort of thought that as well, but at that point I didn't really care because I was just so miserable. And the key reason I was miserable was because I was in this terrible pain, was unemployed, was 26, a virgin, told I had an incurable autoimmune disease after spending 11 years trying to serve God, you know, giving up boyfriends, sex, all the things that a young person would kind of want because I had been told I had to follow this very narrow ideology, essentially. And I had also been told that God wanted to heal me and God showed absolutely no signs of wanting to heal me. And people were constantly praying for me and absolutely nothing happened. So I had this very bad pain and it did gradually get better and life got better. But I had several flare-ups. One of them happened after a row with my boss at work. And I think it was very, well, my therapist said, and it was kind of obvious that I basically punished myself for standing up to my boss, whether I was right or wrong to stand up to my boss. The net result was that literally within a few hours, I was crippled with pain again, and it was right back to the beginning and I couldn't get rid of it. And then there was, I think, the time that I was at this getting out of your own way workshop or whatever it was, there had been another flare up. And every time that happened, I was in absolute despair. I thought, I can never shake this thing off. I can't live a normal life. I can't walk without pain. You know, is it really too much you ask to be able to walk down the street without being in agonizing pain? But I was in terrible pain and I tried endless medical things, endless holistic things, etc. And I remember this guy, he was called Bernie, I think. I remember talking to him. I don't remember it very clearly, but I do remember talking to him after this workshop and saying, I'm in despair, I don't know what to do. And I think he said that in the war, people could kind of cope when the war, you know, with the bombing and so on, that they could kind of cope during it, but it was kind of It was something about how you can cope up to a point and then it comes back or something. And at that point, you think this is unbearable. I just can't cope. So that's how I felt. And it was also very clear to me that I was doing something, something I couldn't control within myself that was holding me back, crippling me with pain, stopping me from literally walking forwards and having the life I wanted to have. But knowing that didn't make it stop, you know? And I mean, this human psyche, as you know, extremely well, is a very, very complicated beast. And knowledge is not always power. Knowledge sometimes helps and it sometimes doesn't. So I had a sense of what was happening. I didn't know why it was happening and I could do absolutely F all about it. So this is the time when you really got into therapy. But what actually really shocked me was that your mother, who comes across as the most loving person ever, kept on begging you to leave therapy. Why do you think that was? I don't know. It was very upsetting. And we had a massive row about it 
in Sweden one year and I thought I'd kind of ruptured the relationship beyond repair. I think she was just of the generation that thought therapy was an indulgence. And I think she didn't like the idea of me sort of, you know, sitting around talking about myself, analyzing myself, analyzing the family. I think she probably assumed that I was talking about family stuff. And I think there was a part of her, a very old fashioned part of her that thought that was disloyal. I mean, my father on occasion, not in the context of therapy, but he he would sometimes say, honor thy father and thy mother. You know, he was, again, was of that generation. And he was a, they were both churchgoers. My father kept a prayer book on his bedside table. He would never talk about his faith, but he was a kind of old fashioned Anglican. And I, he did believe, he, he certainly believed in the ethics of Christianity or of New Testament Christianity. And he was a very regular churchgoer. And he would say, honour thy father and thy mother. So I think there was probably a big sort of element of suspicion that there was disloyalty going on there. I think it was just sort of alien to her experience. I think she thought it was a kind of wacky, self-indulgent thing to be doing. And I think she would have just been a lot more comfortable if I could slap a medical label on it, take a pill and get rid of it. And frankly, so would I, but I did have a medical label and it didn't get rid of it. And nor did taking a pill of which I took, you know, a fair number, had all kinds of things, steroid injections, you know, medication, painkillers, none of it made any difference at all. And it wasn't as if I liked therapy. And it was interesting you say I was into therapy. I didn't like it and I wasn't really into it. It was just that I felt I had no other options at that point because I thought this seems to me the only thing that might help and it might not. And it, that's a horrible situation. But if you think there's something that might help, you have to do it, I think. Uh, how many years of therapy did you do in all then? Oh, I've done many years of therapy. I, tried, I, I can't quite remember now, but I think at that time, maybe five or six years of therapy, probably ending up once a fortnight rather than, I, I think I started off sort of twice a week and ended up once a fortnight or something. I think two lots of therapy had a profound effect on my life. The first therapist I saw, Mrs. Jones in the book, the only adult I have ever called Mrs. as an adult, I think that did have a profound effect. And I think that was very, very important for me in terms of self-knowledge, understanding family dynamics. And then the other therapy I had, which I also write about in the book, was when I was diagnosed with breast cancer the second time when I was 46. And I just thought, I can't do this. I really thought this is unbearable, actually, which is ironic because, you know, you have two choices, you know, die or do the stuff that will stop you dying. And there were times when I thought, well, I think I'd rather die, even though I really, really, really didn't want to die. And I felt, as I say in the book, at the time, I had a very, very harsh verdict on my life. And I do, I remember saying quite matter-of-factly to various people, the thing is, if I die now, my life will have been a failure. And I really felt that. Wow. Very stark thing to say, shocking actually, but I, I really felt that at the time. My acupuncturist actually, who had treated me when I'd had a flare-up of the leg pain some years before, said, I saw this therapist for three years. I think you should see him. He's a former NHS psychiatrist who was now a psychotherapist. Absolutely brilliant. And I think that therapy really changed me in an almost alchemical way. I think it changed me from being someone with real predisposition towards ill health to someone who's kind of fundamentally healthy physically and probably emotionally. I think I was 
Well, I was going to say, I think I was mentally and emotionally relatively robust before in that I've never had kind of mental illness or anything, or I would say I've never suffered from depression, but I have suffered from despair. I have had, you know, been very, very desperate at times in my life, very unhappy. And I think something about that process of analysis or therapy really changed that. And I'm absolutely sure I wouldn't be in a happy, stable relationship now if I hadn't had it. Because one of the most shocking things in the whole book is that you slice open two pages that your sister Caroline had sellotaped together in her diary. Mm. What did you find in that hidden place in the diary? Yeah, my mother gave me a few things after Caroline died because she knew I wanted to write about her and maybe she shouldn't have. I felt as if she had the right to say whether or not I could look at Caroline's person stuff. And maybe she didn't, but anyway, she did. And I did read some of this diary and a lot of it was very innocent actually about, you know, TV programs she's watched. But I did find these two pages sellotaped together. And this was written when she was very, very young. So I think, I can't remember, again, you've read the book more recently than me. I think she was maybe something like 21 or something, and I would have been 16 or, or something like that. So very, very young. But in these two pages that she had sellotaped together between them, there were two things that really shocked me. And one was something like, the name Christina Patterson makes me want to choke with hatred. And the other was, dear God, please may Christina die this year of cancer. <sighs> oh, I don't know what to cry now. As you yes. can imagine, I found out after I'd had cancer and I had cancer when I was 39. And obviously, you know, it was devastating. I'd never had a long-term relationship and I was thought I might, well, obviously I, I thought I might die because I would have died if I hadn't had treatment. And also I was told I would need a mastectomy, which felt to me absolutely devastating at 39 without having had a proper long-term relationship. And as it happened through getting a second opinion and having more surgery, I did manage to avoid a mastectomy that time round. I didn't the second time I had cancer, but the whole thing was still pretty, pretty tough. And I had just got a new job when I found out I had cancer and I was scared of losing it. So I just started working at The Independent. So I didn't even tell people there. I mean, I had to tell my boss and the editor knew, but most people didn't know I had cancer. And that was one of the reasons I decided not to have chemotherapy because I couldn't bear the idea of people at work knowing I had cancer. I mean, obviously, had it been a kind of higher grade of cancer, I would have had no choice, but it was very borderline. And I did go against medical advice in not having chemo. And it was very, very, very tough. So then to open a diary of my sister's and find that she had been actively praying for me to have cancer was just a really profound shock. And in fact, I did get a flare up of my leg pain not long afterwards. And who knows if that was related, but what I have learned over the years is that we all carry our distress in different ways. And I think I have carried mine in my body that somehow the reason you were sabotaging yourself was because you felt guilty in some way that your sister's life was a small life mm. and something inside you said, I have to have a small life too, yeah. even though there was the other half of you saying, you know, I want to go out and meet the world. Mm. Exactly. I mean, of course that wasn't conscious, but that was first raised with that first therapist, really. I was shocked by when she suggested that Caroline's 
was envious of me and that my pain might in some way be a response to that envy. I mean, broadly speaking, I think her her thesis was that because Caroline was ill, I had made myself ill. And as you've just said, because her circumstances were very constrained, I felt obliged at some level not to outshine her and to make sure that my circumstances were also very constrained. And obviously we can't do control experiments, but I think probably that was the case. I think at some very profound level, I thought I wasn't allowed to be successful. I wasn't allowed to be happy. I wasn't allowed to have a relationship. And of course, you know, shackling myself to this vicious God was quite an effective way of making sure that all those things happened for a long time. But you did find love. How? How? Because yes, because it it sounds rather it sounds rather grim at this point. Because it seems like it's been a, a most magical transformation, and I just wondered how it happened. Well, if it sounds grim, what I would say is that. I'm the same person I've always been. You know, what you're experiencing now in this conversation is what people would have experienced of me my whole adult life. You know, I've always had lots of lovely times. I've had masses of friends. I've had really interesting times. You know, I love laughing and drinking and eating and books and, you know, all the rest of it. So I certainly wouldn't want people to think that my life has been grim or that the book is some kind of misery memoir, because although there is quite a lot of sadness in it, there is a lot of joy as well. And I had plenty of romantic adventures, but they weren't ultimately very successful, largely because I was probably being approached by and attracted towards the kind of person, the kind of bloke who was not really capable of making me happy or of having a successful long-term relationship. And I think what happened with that therapy was that something sort of allowed me to kind of be more open towards the kind of person who might make me happy. So with my partner, Anthony, I went back online. I'd done masses of online dating, most of it pretty grim, but it certainly entertained my friends. And I saw his ad, which was very much like my ad and people need to read the book if they want to know exactly what was in it. And we met and on the second, on our second date, I just had this feeling that, yeah, you know, we're here sort of thing. And that's what it's been like ever since. But I think you need to know yourself to actually recognise that information. Yes. And it's partly about recognising someone has the capacity to love. I think what I really saw that night was not just a lovely person who was very attractive, but I could see, and he had made clear in a, a very beautiful email he sent me, I could, I, I just had this feeling that I'm never again going to meet someone who is capable of loving me as much as this man. And I still think that, absolutely. So I'm a writer too. I mean, I've done, I've already done about two volumes of uh, stuff, but I, I don't think I could ever put the whole lot together. And I've been leading various writing groups and you often get people who come along and they say, you know, I want to write my family history. I want to tell my story. Mm. And on one level, I think that's the most wonderful thing because 
I think being a writer is winning the lottery of life mm. for two reasons. Number one, you can always sit down and try and make sense of stuff on mm. the page. Number two, if you're a journalist, it allows you to meet the most wonderful people in the world. You can read a book by Christina Patterson and you can say, I want to interview Christina Patterson <laughs> and the magic of the magic of journalism means yeah. you can. I mean, that's like the most wonderful thing in the world. But even if you're a writer, it's very difficult to actually write a memoir and put it all down. Mm. So my two reactions are, number one of is great. You know, I think it's a wonderful thing to do. It'll really help you understand yourself. But number two, it's a really difficult thing to do Mm. because you just get overwhelmed with material. Yes, exactly. So what advice would you give to people today who are listening, who realise that actually being able to take that step back and look at their life and look at their family would be the most wonderful gift of themselves? How do they go about doing it? Well, I think they should start to write first. And I think if you're going to write, a memoir is a very challenging genre. And I would not start with memoir. I think you should write something else first. I mean, if you want to, if you're writing for catharsis and your own eyes only, then write what you like and do what you like. But if you actually want other people to read it, then probably you need to read masses, read masses of memoirs, read the good ones and sort of let that filter in your brain. And then as you look at the material you're looking at, see how you might want to organise that. But it's true that everybody has a story. I mean, we all live our life through the stories we tell ourselves and the stories we're told. I mean, I was just before coming on this podcast, reading some reporting of yesterday's Victory Day in Russia, and heartbreaking to see how a nation has been brainwashed by its leaders. And they have believed the story they have been told, just as in this country, many people believed the story they were told about Brexit. And whether you thought Brexit was a good or a bad thing to do, there were stories that were told that were not accurate about it. So stories are a very big part of our lives. But writing is an art, you know, painting is an art. So the fact that you have a story doesn't mean you can write that story. You have to learn the craft of writing first, just as if you wanted to paint a portrait you know, you could get out a brush and produce a pin man, but that's not going to go in the National Gallery or necessarily be of any interest to anyone else. So I would start by reading masses and then start small, you know, learn how to write short things first uh, before you write a 300-page book about your family. So maybe just take one incident and write about that. Yes, I think that's probably a good idea, yeah. I mean, sort of almost you would write about for example, the moment that you slice open your sister's diary. Yeah, exactly. That would be a wonderful thing to write because it would get you right into the heart of it. Yeah. But you sort of need to walk us into the room with the diary and the sharp implement. What did you use to actually open it up? Probably scissors, I think. I can't remember whether it was scissors or a knife. I I think it was scissors. So, you know, get the scissors. We need to feel the scissors cutting the sellotape mm. and see your reaction and then just see where it spills mm. from from there. Mm. And that's a sort of manageable kind of chunk. Exactly, yeah. And in fact, I think I would challenge everybody listening to this podcast to think of, you know, the equivalence for them of this and to sit down and write it because it can give you that sort of eagle eye on the moment Mm. and to learn something. What do you think you learned from that particular moment? I mean, I wouldn't want anyone reading my diary. So we all have thoughts in our head, whether they are written down or not, which are truly shocking. And if there ever were to be 
a truth machine out there that, you know, made our thoughts visible to the world, life would be unbearable. We couldn't live with the truth of what's in other people's heads about us or anything else. And, you know, I think we all experience extremes of love and hate and anger. But also, Caroline had an illness, a very, very cruel illness. And I think her envy and anger towards me, which wasn't there all the time, absolutely not. And certainly not in later years, once I'd done my brilliant equalizing job by making myself <laughs> crippled and ill. Um, um, yeah, I, I just think, I think that's just a truth about the human psyche that we all hate. We love, we hate, we are angry. I just glimpsed something ugly. It didn't mean that she was a bad person or didn't even mean that she didn't love me. I mean, there was also the card I found after she died that she'd bought, you know, months before my birthday that said, you know, for a wonderful sister, which I was incredibly moved by. Mm. We are complicated creatures. I think that's the kind of key thing one could say. We are extremely complicated creatures. And what I'm sitting here thinking while listening to you is that somehow we conflate one moment in somebody's life to be emblematic of the whole thing. Yeah. And in fact, we have lots and lots of moments. Some of them are beautiful. Some of them are terribly ugly. But you can't take one of these moments and sum up everything from it. Exactly. And actually, if we could do that a little less... I think we'd all be happier and make better relationships, to be honest. Absolutely. And and the other thing I would say in response to your question about memoir, really, is that writing a memoir is a big ethical responsibility as well, if you are going to put it out there, because obviously it is your interpretation of events and your memories, which may or may not be accurate. And if you do publish a family memoir, and if people do read it, and particularly if a lot of people read it, that will be a record of your family. That's a very, very big responsibility. So if you were to conflate a moment like that with the sum of a person's life, that would have been a very cruel and misleading act. So I do think the ethics of it all are very important. And I am comfortable with what I have done because I feel other people, obviously, you know, they're dead, so they can't argue with it. But I, I think other members of my wider family have felt that it was an accurate portrayal of the family and a kind one. I want to be kind. I mean, my family were great and complicated. And ultimately, I would rather err on the side of compassion than on the side of unkindness. But as you said, there are things in there that are very honest and, you know, they probably wouldn't want out there like my mother's intolerance of psychotherapy. So I do think that, you know, writing a memoir is a big act in many, many ways. You know, there's a huge artistic challenge and then there's a huge ethical challenge and you have to take all of that seriously. And the person you were toughest on of all was yourself, to be honest. Probably. And that's the right way around, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I mean, I think that is the secret of writing a memoir. You try and be kind to all the other people in it, and you are as tough and hold yourself to account because, after all, we're the only person whose behaviour we can change exactly. ourselves. So exactly. I th if it's the opposite way around, I think that's probably called a political memoir. <laughs> I don't read those. <laughs> Thank you.
The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Let me tell you about my Substack newsletter. I'd love for Meaningful Life listeners to subscribe. The newsletter is a mix of relationship advice and my thoughts about building a meaningful life. I'm hoping that as it grows, it's going to become a shared space where you can tell me your thoughts and also suggest ideas for podcast episodes. You can find everything at themeaningfullife.substack.com. So please do sign up. Details will also be in the show notes. One of the things that we do on this programme is we invite our listeners to write in. And this letter I discussed another week, but um, we looked at it in a slightly academic sort of kind of way. And I thought that it would be very interesting to have your take on this letter as well. And it's about our relationship with people who are no longer here. And I can think of nothing more profound than your relationship with the people who are not here because you've spent so much time thinking about them and writing about them. So here is the letter. I feel envious of my aunt who says she can still talk to all the people that she loved but who have died, like her husband, her daughter and her sister, my mother. She often tells me that they are all with her in her kitchen and from time to time she will ask them what to do, she will listen, and they will answer. Since my mother died, I felt unable to speak to her, not even in my head. I feel cut off from her love and protection. It would be such a relief to be able to speak to her again, but even when I sat with her coffin the day before her funeral, I could not find the words. The best I could manage was thank you and goodbye. Since then, nothing. Perhaps I shouldn't need to speak to her. I'm not even sure what I would say, but somehow the silence is eating away at me. Do you still have a sort of ongoing relationship with your family members? Definitely not. Definitely not. And the line that really sort of sprang out, and first of all, you know, I want to say my heart goes out to you because obviously it is, as I know all too well, it is very, very painful to lose someone you love. And the line that sprang out at me was the silence is eating away at me. So I understand that it is a part of the grief here. But my view is that when people die, they're dead. I mean, you can't talk to them because they're dead. I I don't mean literally. No, I understand that. But I don't feel I have, because I feel so strongly that they are dead, I don't feel I have any relationship with them now. And I have never tried to talk or write to any of them in any way because I mean, I could do as an exercise for me. And I I think that's a perfectly fine thing to do. And it may well be that it would be helpful if the silence is eating away, then it may well be that it's helpful to write a letter to their mother saying what they would like to say, just to kind of get the, um, the discomfort out of the head, really. But in terms of the aunt who feels she has conversations with people she has lost, you know, if that consoles her, that's great. You know, obviously, I think that's extremely unlikely. So I don't know what's going on in her head. And we console ourselves how we can. But for me, I I believe that, you know, truth is really important. So I don't like euphemisms. I don't like it when people say that people pass away. I don't like any of that. As far as I'm concerned, if you're dead, you're dead. And it's very painful to lose someone, but it's also absolutely normal. We all die. Literally every single human being on the face of the planet will die. 
And it's very painful, but it is just a part of life. And we can spend a lot of time thinking about the people who have died. And that's fine if we want to. I know it sounds a funny thing to say because I've written a book about it, but I actually don't spend much time thinking about my family. There's a family grave. I don't go to it. I don't like thinking about the past. I wanted to write this book because I wanted to write this memoir for the reasons I've given earlier, but I want to focus on the future. And I just think life is extremely short. And if you are experiencing sharp grief about somebody who's died, do whatever makes you feel better, as long as it's legal and doesn't harm anyone else. But ultimately, my message would be, if you can, you know, find other things to think about and focus on, because life is so short and we could spend our whole lives in a morass of grief. Well, I'm I'm going to say completely the opposite. I think that if the grief is there, you should run towards it rather than run away from it. You know, it sounds to me almost like, you know, if the silence is eating up at you, then you need to be talking and maybe a therapist is the person to talk to about this. Maybe there are things that you do need to say, you know, mm. even in the therapist's office out loud, it makes them more real than if they're just rumbling around in your head or maybe even in your unconscious because you sort of don't seem to know what it is you want to say. But we've got the two opposite ends mm. of the spectrum. Well, I did look, I did is, say I'm pro-therapy and I did say write it down. I did say write down what you feel. So I'm pro-therapy, and I. but broadly speaking, I think that grief is something that ideally you get through. I think there are certain things. I think if you lose a child, for example, it's very, very hard to recover from that. But broadly speaking, I think it's helpful to process the grief. Absolutely process it. And, and I do think it's good to talk about it. But, you know, in a, in a safe space, like a therapist's couch, not ideally to talk about it to everyone all the time, because I think grief can become part of your rationale then rather than something that you get through that's just a part of life. Yeah, I mean, I lost my partner when I was 37. And for many years, it sort of was the thing that defined me. Mm. And I don't think that's really what I want to be defined mm. by. But, um, you know, it did for a very long time, you know, that uh, I wrote about nothing but death and love, which I have to say, you know, what other topics are there? But, mm. you know, I've written a huge amount about death. I'm doing a lots of podcasts where we have grief as a topic at the moment. Mm. I think that's possibly the different personalities. Mm, interesting that. I mean, I've never wanted, you know, some people who've had cancer call themselves cancer survivors. I think having cancer a couple of times was the least interesting thing that happened to me. You know, half of us are going to get cancer at some point. It's very unpleasant. You know, if you're lucky, you don't die. And then you get on with the next thing. So what is the most interesting thing that's happened to you then? The most interesting thing? Oh, I couldn't pick one. I couldn't pick one most interesting thing, I don't think. Being alive is fascinating. <laughs> it's just absolutely fascinating. I think that's the most interesting thing that's happened to me. <laughs> so we now have to ask you the most difficult question of all. As a witness on the meaningful life, what makes your life meaningful? Being alive. I just think life itself is meaningful. I mean, we can give it any meaning we like, but I just think everything makes life meaningful. Everything love, friendships, relationships, being engaged with the world, politics, history, culture, art, food, wine, flowers, coffee, cake, chocolate, all of it makes it meaningful. 
Well, thank you very much for joining me on The Meaningful Life. This is where our conversation is going to end for most people. But if you become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, uh, the conversation goes on. Uh, Christina and I are going to be discussing the three things she knows deep down to be true. And I'm also going to ask her about the art of not falling apart. If you'd like to hear more about that and continue with this conversation, you can subscribe through Spotify or Apple, or you can go to my website and there'll be details about how you can become a supporter of The Meaningful Life. And here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.